You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week we're hearing from lead pastor Gare Jones. Well, folks, we're in a little mini two week series before John Mark comes to lead us through a series on prayer. And in these little two weeks, we're going to do what we've been doing sporadically throughout the year, and that is diving into the Old Testament. If you remember my stories, I grew up in church, but really struggled with the Old Testament. It felt very dis, like, discontinuous to Jesus. It was like, this seems very odd, very different to Jesus. At best, it was like some fun stories about heroes, uh, but the rest of it we just glossed over, and then I kind of frankly ignored it. But of course, we, Jesus valued the Old Testament and looked at it as the very word of God, the scripture of God, And when I went to seminary, I had to deal with my view and my understanding of the Old Testament. And what I found was surprising and beautiful and became a treasure in my life of, I love the Old Testament. That in the words of the Bible Project, it truly is one story, cohesive story, Old and New Testament pointing towards Jesus. And so throughout this year, we're diving into the Old Testament to discover its beauty, to discover its coherence, to discover the story that leads to Jesus. And you know what I'm like, I don't shy away from tough passages. I don't shy away from things that we go, ooh, let's not talk about that. And so I get asked this question a lot, and so we're gonna dive into it today. Um, slightly awkward timing on Dedication Sunday, we're gonna talk about the 10 plagues. <laughs> Didn't kind of really work that one out properly. Um, But this has been a story which has perplexed many of, what is going on here? How does this fit with Jesus? How on earth does this story ring true of the God of love? As we look at the story of the 10 plagues, remember just the backstory if you don't know. At the end of Genesis, the people of God are facing a famine, so all head down to Egypt where there's a lot of food. They camp down there. The beginning of the next book of the Bible, Exodus, we see the people of God are multiplying and fruitful and they're having a great time as immigrants in this foreign land and they're growing and multiplying but kind of multiplying a bit too much for Pharaoh's liking. They're too successful, they're too fruitful, they're too prosperous and he starts to fear if we don't stop this they're going to probably overtake us and then we'll be the minority. And so insecurity and pride, racism sets in. And so Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, starts to try and squash their reproduction by killing firstborn, tries to stop their productivity by enslaving them. And so before long, we see this brutal dictator bringing oppression, genocide, slavery to the people of God. In this moment of genocide where every firstborn is to be killed of the Israelite community, there is one mum who, like all mums, is a hero and saves her child. His name is Moses. And you know that story, she puts him in a little basket, which is the same word for ark, as in Noah's ark, puts him in a basket on the Nile, and he's saved and found by one of the royal palace and is raised in the royal palace. But then through some kind of, uh, as an adult, he struggles with what's going on with his own people and gets into a fight. And long story short, he's exiled. He runs away, runs away from Egypt into the wilderness. And eventually God meets him in a burning, push, in a burning bush. 
and is calling Moses to help bring his people out of Egypt. And we're going to pick up just the story as we look at God's word in Exodus chapter 3, beginning of verse 7. This is what the Lord said to Moses at the burning bush. He said, look, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land and a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord, our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians and with all the wonders that I will perform among them. Only after that, he will let you go. Moses goes to Pharaoh, warns him about what's going to happen, says that you really need to let us go or this is not going to end well with you. But Pharaoh doesn't. He maintains his stubbornness, he maintains, he actually doubles the punishment of slavery on the people of Israel. And so God begins what is commonly known as the 10 plagues. It's not a great word because plague in our kind of context means disease, but there's only one of these plagues that are a disease. They're really 10 strikes is the Hebrew, kind of actions of striking judgment. And the 10 are, as you may remember, turning the Nile to blood, frogs, infestation of frogs, lice, flies, livestock disease, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and the death of the firstborn. And only after that last plague, a strike, does Pharaoh relent and let the Israelites go. What on earth is going on here? What, what kind of God is this? Throughout this passage, we see a, a refrain where God says both to Moses and through Moses to Pharaoh that through this you will know who I am. And so in one way, the beginning point of understanding this is to see that this is a demonstration of one of the attributes of God. It's hard to get to know someone unless you see it in action, right? And you are a complex person, like God is a complex person. If you had to describe who you are, you'll use lots of different words for it. And then every now and again, someone will know you in a certain context, and, and then, but then see you in a different context and go, oh, I didn't know you were like that. We're complex, right? And so is God, and every now and again, the Old Testament is like a mosaic of different aspect, different stories that reveal to us a certain aspect of who God is, who God Yahweh is. Remember in Exodus 34, God describes who he is. He says, look, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. There's that phrase in there, slow to anger, an aspect of God that because he's slow to anger, we don't often see. We see all the other attributes, his grace and his faithfulness a lot, his compassion. Every now and again in scripture, 
God goes, I'm also slow to anger, and let me tell you, let me show you what it's like when I get angry. That is what is going on here in the 10 strikes, the 10 plagues. What is God's anger like? What does it look like? Well, we see it on display. And what we see, it begins that his anger always flows out of love. Not out of insecurity, not out of pride, not out of kind of inferiority complex like our anger, but out of love. It's because he's so loving, he becomes angry. We see that at the very start in verse seven. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm concerned about their suffering. Just think of your loved ones. When you hear them suffering in misery, crying out because of wrongful oppression and injustice, you get angry. Your rightful response is anger because of your love for them. God's anger is not something passe or out of touch or kind of, I kind of grew up with an angry God. I kind of want a different type of West Coast God of love. And... No, you want a God who gets angry at injustice and evil. You want a God who doesn't turn a blind eye to trafficking and slavery and abuse. You want a God who says, I will oppose that because I love you and I want to drive it out. It's what we see with Jesus. Whenever Jesus comes up against evil and suffering, he doesn't say, I caused this, I created this, he opposes it. The same God we see in Jesus is the same God here, looking at his people, crying out, and he gets angry. God's love is his motivation, just like it was in John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he sent his son. His anger is sent out of his love. But his anger is a unique anger because it's not a quick-tempered anger. It's not irrational, it's not reactionary, it's not losing his rag, it's not, oh my word, tiptoeing around God, because when he loses it, he really loses it. <laughs> no. Although at the start, you look at these 10 strikes and you think, gosh, they seem so random. They seem like God's just like furious. He's like lost control. But it's the opposite, actually, of what we see when you dig into it. When you dig into it, you see this choreographed, well thought out, measured response that God brings in striking Pharaoh. In fact, if you want to really nerd out for a minute, the first nine of the acts are all linked in some kind of uh, vertically and horizontally in a literary way. So um, they, lots of the, the strikes have the same refrains at the same time of day or the same refrains that show that actually these are not random, that they're well thought out. That God isn't quick-tempered and lashing out, but he's actually deliberately going, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And in fact, he's measured in his response that he actually starts with something that is not harming them individually, but will escalate quickly if they don't stop. He starts with turning the river Nile to blood trying to get their attention, trying to say, look, this is the life source of your community. I'm gonna, I'm gonna withhold that for a minute. Please, will you repent? And they don't. God, as we saw before, God never 
brings revenge, but a measure, the right measure of judgment, of justice, in order to bring you to repentance, not too much and hopefully not too little. And what we see with the plagues is each time Pharaoh refuses to respond and repent, so he dials it up a further notch. Each time, nine times in total, he invites through Moses, Pharaoh, to repent and to turn away. It's not quick-tempered. It's thoughtful. It's measured. It's not revengeful. It's out of love for his people and for the Egyptians to turn them away from their evil. But we also see that his anger focuses on the real enemy. So easy to think that the real enemy, the only enemy here is Pharaoh. But of course, we know through the teachings of Jesus and his ministry and throughout the scripture, it's more complicated than that. That sometimes there's invisible realities of darkness that are operating as well as our own choices of evil. And the two are interlinked. And so we have in Exodus chapter 12 that God says, I'm going to bring my judgment on all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. So these plagues are in some way spiritual warfare against the gods of Egypt. The word gods there does not mean that there's a plurality of capital G gods. The word gods in that context is the word Elohim, which refers generally to, it could be God, but it could also just be spiritual force, some spiritual reality, some other spiritual personhood that is evil in the world. And behind Pharaoh is the darkness of a spiritual reality. In our kind of West Coast scientific kind of approach to things, we go, ah, you know, that devil stuff, Satan stuff is all a myth. And yet most cultures throughout all of history and even today would disagree. We're actually, it's much more complex and we've seen the teachings of Jesus and in the ministry of Jesus that yes, there is natural evil, we make evil choices. There are people who rightly have to, held, have to be held accountable for their choices. But sometimes, you will know as well as I do, that sometimes you're looking at a situation and going, there's more to this than meets the eye. I think there's something going on behind here. I think there's a spiritual reality, a darkness behind here. It's what we see throughout the biblical narrative. It's what we see in the teachings of Jesus. That, and the ministry of Jesus, that there's demonic flare-ups when Jesus walks around as the darkness cannot stand the light. It's what we see in the writings of Paul in Ephesians where he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the government or your boss or your enemy in your life. No, he says, they may be part of the problem, but take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not just against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's why the disciple who kind of nicknamed himself the beloved, thinking that he was loved the most, um, John, when he wrote his letter, he said, look, the reason, in 1 John 3, he said, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Every now and again, in my life, I've seen behind the kind of the reality physically into, I think there's more going on. You know the story of coming, 
when my wife and I came to Start Vintage Church way back in 2011. Well, before that, we'd taken a visit with some team from our church in Raleigh, North Carolina to come out here and maybe plant the church with us. So we flew out. It was like the summer of 2010. We didn't know, we knew a couple of people, Amy Holmes and some other people, and about eight of them came. They were like the Delta Force of church planting team, man. They were amazing. They'd been part of the young adult ministry that we'd been doing in Raleigh. And they were pumped about coming to Los Angeles. They were looking for jobs. We came out to look around for apartments. But the moment we had landed, it felt like we had landed into spiritual warfare. The whole of the weekend, particularly Friday night and all day Saturday, I've never seen such spiritual attack. Now, I grew up realizing that was real, but also I grew up also very cautious about saying everything was spiritual warfare, right? I'm not a devil is behind every red light kind of guy, okay? Only when I'm in a rush, okay? So I'm pretty cautious. I've seen it like wacky and way too much. It's like, dude, I think, I think that's just your bad choices, right? I'm that kind of guy. And this team from Raleigh were, the, were like further that way. They were good old Southern Baptists who I love. They were like, I don't believe any of that stuff. Or Gare's kind of helped me understanding of it. But I'd never seen that weekend such obvious demonstration of spiritual warfare. We were prayer walking around the city. We had three people randomly come up and say, do not come here. Just random. Like, wow. We had one person we kind of met some people to try, who were interested in the church and one person just sat me down and said, look, I need to have a chat with you. I've been praying and you should not come here because if you come here, your daughters will be raped. We went, what? <sighs> Yay, church planting team. It was like, I remember that night we were staying at this hotel and then that night, uh, I just had, I felt attack all night in my sleep. I just got down for breakfast thinking, gosh, that was an awful night. And then they all came down for breakfast and they all looked white as a ghost. All of them, separate rooms. I said, what happened? And all of them, the same thing. Felt that we were under attack all evening with oppression around our throats and suffocation, like not breathing. And so I said to them, look, you know, I'm that charismatic guy who talks about spiritual warfare. <laughs> this is it. Every now and again, the veil is torn and you can see. So we sat down and we prayed and we talked about the reality of spiritual warfare. That actually, we're clearly agitating the spiritual world by wanting to help and be part of God's kingdom out here in LA. Right. Now, I took them to the airport early Sunday morning, realizing none of them were gonna come to LA. <laughs> I thought that was it. I could see their white as a ghost going, oh yeah, I just feel, oh, I'm not too sure. Right, and I went, okay. And I tell you what, I will forever, I've never met the guy, but I'll forever appreciate and thank Mark Brewer at Bel Air Presbyterian. Because I thought, where am I going? I was literally crying, going, Lord, I've lost my team. The spiritual warfare is, is manic. What am I going to do? And so I just felt, I, well, I needed to go to church. So I went, I know, I'll go to that bougie church on the hill called Bel Air Presbyterian. <laughs> and I went up to the church, sat down about eighth row back, just sat there. And Mark Brewer, who I've never met before, still haven't met. He came on the stage and he just said, look, I just want to talk this morning about something I rarely talk about. I want to talk about the reality of spiritual warfare. I want to say that some of you today, some of you today are right in the center of God's will because you're facing the spiritual warfare. And don't you dare give up. And I knew 
All right, Lord, we're in. We're in. Not with fear, but with hope. Because the Son of Man came to defeat the works of the evil one. But see, this is, this is what God is doing. He said, I'm going to show you that these attack, I need to strike back at the real enemy here. There is a real enemy that we're complicit with, of course. But right back in the Old Testament, he's identifying this enemy and these plagues because of the, they relate very carefully to some of the gods of the Egyptians and they're very much, oh, okay, this is an attack upon the so-called authority of these gods. But it's more than just spiritual warfare because God does bring judgment also to those who are oppressing, those who are opposing the things of God. In his anger, he will intervene. And these judgments, scholars call the judgments of decreation. Now that's a strange word, I have to explain it. It's not just the 10 plagues or the 10 strikes, it's almost the 10 acts of decreation. What's interesting is God is saying to Pharaoh, okay, if you wanna do your own thing, if you wanna reject me fully, then I will let you reject me fully. Have your way and I'm gonna step out. I'm the author of life, I'm the author of light, I'm the author of all good things in this world. If you truly wanna get rid of me, I'm gonna give you a taste of what that's like. He unravels creation. These 10 acts or plagues, 10 acts of decreation, they correspond to the 10 utterances of creation in Genesis chapter one. They're intentionally linked. That way God creates and he begins with let there be light, the decreation begins and ends with darkness as the ninth plague and the Passover happens at night. God is saying, I'm gonna step in and if you truly want to reject me, I'm gonna give you a taste of what that rejection will mean for you. Even if it means rejecting life, you will experience the pain of death as your own choice. Now this is a very extreme act of decreation. In the text, this is how God responds to evil in the world, it's decreation. Most, there's two types of decreation. Uh, one type is called passive decreation, one is active decreation. Most of the time it's passive, I'll come on to that in a minute. But this is those rare examples where God says this evil is so great that this is so abhorrent this is so evil, I'm gonna intentionally dial up the decreation. I'm gonna intentionally dial up. I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna accelerate it. I'm gonna give you a taste of it that you may see what life is truly like without me. Give you some examples. So the River Nile in the Genesis account was where life, the sources of life would come from. Now straight away, the Nile becomes a source of death as it's filled with blood. Out of the dust in Genesis 1, God takes us and forms life. And from the dust in the plague come gnats which bring death. God begins, let there be light, and he brings light and brings order into the chaos. And at the very end, the whole of the country is put back into chaos in darkness. And of course, the great, the great celebration of new life in Genesis 1 is reversed at the very end in death. Now, this active decreation is very rare in the Bible, but it's sobering to realize 
that you push God far enough and we see that he's not just gonna stand by. But most of, praise the Lord, most of his decreation is passive. What I mean by that is he just says to us in all throughout scripture, most of the time and in our own lives, he just goes, dude, if you're gonna actually try and live without me, have your own way and let's see how it goes. Let's just, I'm gonna let you experience the consequences of your actions like any good parent. And I'm gonna take away my creative kind of bailing you out because you're rejecting me. And so I'm not gonna bring it, I'm not gonna give you active, I'm gonna actually just be passive and see how it goes because we know how it's gonna go. But you need to come to that conclusion yourself. I remember when I was very young, 10 years old, and my brother and I were on a long drive. He's a lot older than me, so he could drive. And we were on this very long journey, about a three hour journey and in the car. It was just me and him. It was days before GPS, the days before all that kind of stuff. It was back in the 1800s. And I, was, <laughs> I had this big old map, right? And I'm 10, I'm thinking I'm really cool. I'm really, I know how to do this. And so I was directing him and we didn't, he had no idea where we were going. Um, and so he trusted me. Well, after about three hours, he said, how far are we? And I pointed to the map of where we were and he went, we're still three hours away. And I'd basically gone in the wrong direction completely, <laughs> gone in a few loops and I'd misread the map completely. That started an almighty argument with me and my brother. Almighty argument. All stuff came back from when we were really young and all that kind of stuff. Started hitting each other in the car. And I said, I'm done. I, I, he was like kind of my authority figure in the car. I went, I'm done. I don't need you. Don't need mom and dad. I'm totally, I'm right. Let me out. I'm gonna live life on my own. I don't need this, I've got this. And my brother went, cool, have your own way. Stopped the car in this village in the middle of nowhere in Wales. I got out the car and I thought, slam the door. See you in heaven. <laughs> right? And he drove off and I walked off. 10 years old, I kept walking, thinking I got this, totally got this. Totally fine, just find a job, get a house. You know, need something to eat. And I kept walking. Walked into the local town, wandering around. And before long, I was thinking, hmm, I have no money. Hmm. And it dawned on me, hang on a minute, I haven't thought this through. I was facing the consequences of, I thought, I don't need God. I don't need my brother, I don't need my parents. This is fine. And suddenly, tears started to come to my eyes and go, oh no. What have I done? It sounded so good to throw off all authority, to throw off kind of anyone telling me what to do and just live my own life. And then all of a sudden, my own way is not good for me. I need help. For about an hour of wandering around, I walked back and my brother was still there. He drove back, livid, that basically he was trying to work out what to do with, I lost my brother. <laughs> But see, many of us know that story, right? God says, okay, have your way. I love you, have your way. Many of us have come to Los Angeles from other parts of the country and gone, you know what? I'm gonna try life without God for a bit. And God loves you but goes, okay, have your way. Passive decreation. And many of you have come back today, maybe you're here for the first time in a long time going, okay, yeah. It's not all what I thought it would be. I need to come back. Passive decreation as God 
throughout scripture allows us to feel the consequences. This is what Paul says in Romans 1. He says, God gave them over to their sinful desires. It's like, he doesn't bring evil, doesn't cause evil. Very rarely does he do acts of active. But he gives us over. So great, have a go and see how it works out for you. And like the prodigal son, we eventually will all wake up in the mud and come to our senses and want to come home. But in this story, we see what the active, the, when God realizes he can't just leave to passive, he must be active. And he comes in with active decreation. But all of this decreation activity is with the aim of recreation. It's with the aim of recreation. God's anger leading to judgment of decreation is not an end in of itself. Is always coming out of love to restore, to heal, to bring back, to start again, to wipe the slate clean. Come on, guys, I want you home. Let's stop with this. And sometimes he has to intervene severely, intervene severely to wake us up. It's why throughout the plagues, he keeps saying to Pharaoh, will you now repent? And it's why for those who do repent, for those who do want to follow God, he provides a refuge in the midst of the plagues. You see, right at the very end, when death is coming, at the choice of the, the, of the Egyptians of rejecting God, they're gonna taste the consequences of their actions. He says, look, but to all who do want to turn back, I will provide a refuge. He says to Egyptians and Israelites alike, look, here's the way of the refuge. Go into your home and you'll be saved. And at night, death will come. But if you go into your home, you will be saved. And interestingly, fascinatingly, beautifully, in the, the Hebrew for into your home is a play on words for the Hebrew word for Noah's Ark. That just like there was an ark to save you on the decreation flood, so there is now an ark, an inverted ark of your home. And more than that, I'm not just gonna sweep what you've done under the carpet, I'm not just gonna kind of sweep away justice, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work out a way to save you as well as to actually deal with justice because I'm a God of justice, how do I do that? And he begins this story of a substitute, a Passover lamb. To solve that great dilemma of God's inattention with you that he loves you so much but we realize we can't just point at pharaohs of the world as what the problem is. We also have to kind of point at ourselves. See, this is the pattern we see throughout scripture in the 10 plagues and throughout all of scripture there's this cycle that God goes through of creation, decreation and then recreation. And in fact, as you look at Exodus, what we see in Exodus is literally a reenactment of this cycle that we saw in Genesis. That Genesis is a story of creation to decreation to recreation, and so it begins again in Exodus. My little homemade graphics on the next slide, I'm so sorry, but we see that in Genesis it begins in creation, Adam and Eve, and then creation of Israel in Egypt, and what we see on this next slide is, it starts kind of in a similar way that in Genesis 1:28, God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. 
In Exodus chapter one, the people of Israel are in Egypt and they were fruitful. They had multiplied and the earth was filled with them. It's this once again that God's starting, okay, creation. But then the enemy comes in just like it did. The Sa Satan and Adam and Eve collaboratively rejected God. So now Pharaoh and the Elohim are rejecting God. Leading to chaos and God, these are the very few acts of active decreation. God comes in in the flood and he comes in with the plagues, defeating the spiritual enemy and the human evil. But in both times he gives a refuge, the ark and now a home ark and a Passover lamb. And what's fascinating is when the waters reside after the flood, what is described in what was left of the land is, is the same language as Genesis 1 of a new world, a new creation. We're starting again with Abraham, a new people. And the same thing coming out of the ark of the Passover of that final plague. It says, I'm gonna take you into a new land, the promised land flowing with milk and honey, resonating back to Genesis 1 of Eden being bountiful. But as I look at this, these patterns of creation, decreation, recreation, and I can't help but going, but when's, it, when's that cycle ever gonna end? I don't know about you, but the world is still full of brokenness. We are still collaborating with, I believe, spiritual evil forces together with us. We're still wreaking havoc in this world. And that's where we see God in Jesus comes to end the cycle. One final cycle of creation, decreation, and recreation around the person of Jesus draws the whole thing to an end. For God so loved the whole world that he came. That where Satan and humanity had brought darkness, he went to the cross to defeat once and for all our spiritual opposition. And he suffered decreation in of itself, death on the cross. And he says, there's gonna be a future judgment but I'm gonna create an ark of refuge that all who trusted me, all who believe in me, God who is now, as John the Baptist said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, if you hide in me, when it comes to that final day of judgment, it'll be a day of joy, not tears. Because I have paid for your judgment by coming and dying on that cross of decreation and you have hidden yourself in the ark of Jesus Christ with his blood washed upon your doorway that you can stand before him loved and forgiven. The great hope of the true Passover lamb. But of course, that day is a day of joy for those who say, I'm gonna go into the house and I'm gonna have the Passover lamb on me because I know I'm part of the problem and thank God he's come to be my substitute. But it's a sober warning to all of us who go, you know what? I'll do it my way. And the 10 plagues is one of those moments where we have to sit in the reality that God loves this world so much and he hates evil so much that he is a God of justice. And though he keeps coming to you time and time again, like he did to Pharaoh, saying, turn back, 
turn back. I have a refuge for you. I will pay for you. I will be punished for you. I will take away your sins. But you have to choose that. You have to get into the ark and you have to wash yourself in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so the 10 plagues points to the great hope we have with Jesus, but also the sober reflection of there is a God who will call us to account because he loves us. Let's pray together. So Jesus, we thank you that you are, you are our ark, Passover lamb, helping us through the waters of judgment. That this world, rightly, we look at the world and go, it is broken. And that's because we are broken and part of the problem. Lord, I just pray now that if there's anyone here this morning, Lord, who is kind of trying to go their own way, but realizing, you know what? Man, I'm experiencing decreation and I want to get back with Jesus. Lord, that you just welcome them home right now. Welcome them back. And for those who've never followed you, Lord, but realize I, I want to get in the ark. I want to have Jesus as my substitute that I can be forgiven. Lord, I pray now that as they say sorry and as they invite you into their life that you rush in like you always do and cleanse them, forgive them. That they know that day of judgment which will come because you do not turn away from just injustice. Lord, that will be a day of joy because our lives are hidden in Christ. So as we worship you, Jesus, we give honor and glory to you. All praise to you. That God himself would come as our Passover lamb. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.